talk about cold exposure. So who here utilizes the cold shower four to five times a week? Um, because it's more than just a feel-good dopamine release, and I recommend you do it. If you can do a cold plunge, even better. Of course, making sure that you are in proper health to do it, and you have proper knowledge and understanding and set up to do it meaning you can get back in a warm house you have warm stuff to drink you're not going to go to hypothermia you're going to deal with things like after drop which is when your body recirculates the blood from the core and you feel colder after you get out of the cold plunge than when you were in it which is a very <laughs> unpleasant experience uh but if you know how to handle it it's no problem but if you don't and you're like you know in the middle of the forest somewhere and you're walking out all of a sudden you might find yourself in a very bad situation that does happen to people i read about someone firsthand sharing it on a Wim Hof page and it's something that we do need to be conscientious of and so Wim Hof says right the cold is merciless but righteous and that right there is sums up the power of dopamine right pain but blissful okay and Maharaji Ramdas's teacher in the book being Ramdas remember him saying something along the lines of all good yogis take a cold bath in the river at 4 a.m. before their yoga practice so in other tradi traditions, they recommend doing it after. I think the Kundalini tradition, they say do it before. I don't know for sure, but it doesn't matter. Before or after, I think is excellent. I've heard it's good to do before because it allows you to start stretching out more. You're way more flexible because of all the flow that goes through the body. Um, but, you know, try it out I, both ways and see what happens. So I like Maharaji. I think he knew what he was talking about most of the time. So... To explain what the cold water does to the system on a deeper level, we're going to look at the endocrine system, which is the system that regulates our glands, which release hormones, which are signaling molecules that tell cells how to respond to any given situation. Hormones can secrete in seconds, such as adrenaline in the example of jumping in a cold plunge, or over the course of months, such as relaxin during a women's pregnancy period. Relaxin is what allows the hips to open up and the ligaments to expand so the baby can come through. The endocrine system is composed of, roughly from the bottom to the top, for men, the testes, women, the ovaries, the adrenal glands, the pancreas, thymus, thyroid gland and parathyroid gland, hypothalamus gland, pineal gland, pituitary gland. And I was kind of looking at some things with the chakra system, the testes and the ovaries related to the root chakra, the adrenal glands related to the sacral chakra, the pancreas, the solar plexus chakra, the thymus, the heart chakra, thyroid, parathyroid, the throat chakra, hypothalamus, there was no um, <laughs> chakra. I, on a quick look, I didn't see anything. So obviously the map is not the territory, and that's a very important phrase with all of this stuff because these are just words, right? Pineal gland, third eye chakra, pituitary gland, the crown chakra. So come back to science. Just, you know, it's nice, to, I think, before coming back to science, looking at an overlay of the chakra system on the uh, endocrine system, it might not really be that valid in a lot of ways, depending if you ask a yogi mystic or a neuroscientist at the end of the day who's an expert in either one, but I think there's something very interesting when we look at the two systems overlaid off one another. So, uh, the adre adrenal glands produce adrenaline, also known as epinephrine, cortisol, the stress hormone, and norepinephrine, also known as noradrenaline. So you might hear these terms thrown around, and this is, you know, 
they're twofold, right? Adrenaline is also epinephrine. Norepinephrine is also noradrenaline. Very closely related, though. And the pituitary and the hypothalamus glands control most functions of the endocrine system. Pituitary gland, a lot of people like to say, is a master gland. I've also seen research or people in articles saying hypothalamus is a master gland. So the hypothalamus coordinates between the nervous system and the endocrine system. The parasympathetic nervous system calms you down while the sympathetic nervous system ramps you up, flight or fight, as it's often referred to. You see a rattlesnake, your nervous system sends a response through the hypothalamus to the adrenals, producing adrenaline or epinephrine. You escape the snake, then the parasympathetic nervous system calms you down with the hormonal response of acetylcholine to calm the heart rate. And this is done using the signaling from the vagus nerve. I'll talk a little more about acetylcholine later on. It's a very interesting uh, neurotransmitter. The vagus nerve is like a super highway where through the vagus, there is information coming from all these different organs of the body, lungs, stomach, immune system, heart, intestines, up to the brain. You've got motor information going from the brain back to the body organs as well. Therefore, the term stimulate the vagus nerve, which you often hear in yoga classes, is a very poor way to go about talking about it because that could mean that the body sends a signal to the brain indicating that it's sick, and then you generate a fever for itself uh, so it's not really the appropriate term because it, it just doesn't, it doesn't encompass fully what it does. So yes, uh, it can encompass a, a relaxing response as we talked about with the, uh, acetylcholine being released, but there's more to it than that. So the question is coming back to yoga and our own experience of life if yoga is all about deep relaxation and utilizing practices to engage the parasympathetic nervous system to calm us down, what is the benefit of releasing massive amounts of adrenaline through the system, which is a sympathetic nervous system response and a byproduct of a stress response, in this case, in a cold plunge? So why did Ra Maharaji recommend it to Ramdas? You know, what is the intention behind stimulating our system in this way that is stressful? So for one... Uh, and lack of a better word, it makes you superhuman. So I talked about this in a previous podcast, and I've, I've updated it and refined it and made sure things are more correct than they were previously. So uh, if you find it repetitive, feel free to scroll through, but there's also new information in here, and it's, I think it's always powerful to hear this stuff again. It, it impacts you and I think inspires you to move forward in this direction of, of applying this practice as a daily thing. So intentionally exposing the system to extreme conditions such as ice water overrides the rational mind it taps us into the depths of the psyche and the body where the survival mode of the sympathetic response releases a non-ordinary state of power internal command over autonomic functions of the body and the mind a flow state in this case we want a flow state you know we're not looking to go into a place of uh, neuroplasticity necessarily and along with enormous list of mental emotional physical and spiritual short and long-term benefits People often report being attacked by sharks as not feeling the pain until they get to shore, and one can easily think of a soldier in a battle ramped up on adrenaline and in such a frenzy they do not even notice their own wounds. The classic example of this non-ordinary power is a condition called hysterical strength, a term for when people experience superhuman strength in life and death situations. Jack Kirby, who worked with Stan Lee, was inspired to create the character The Hulk after witnessing a woman lift a car to save her child. The classic example of hysterical strength. 
The explanation for hysterical strength is thought to be caused by the sudden and massive production of adrenaline and norepinephrine, which are close cousins of one another and precisely the hormones that cold water triggers a release of. The release of adrenaline can lead to glucose and fatty acid metabolism, muscle fiber remodeling, mitochondrial biogenesis, a fancy word for the production of new mitochondria, which prevents various diseases and all kinds of wonderful things, and thermoregulatory function. Adrenaline goes up 530% when in water of 57 degrees Fahrenheit for an hour. So that's not really very cold. That's like a nice lake, you know, it'd be great in the summer. But an hour is a long time. How? So the question is like, what if I just want to go in the ice water for a minute? And there was another study done mainly with women where they found that if they went in 40 degree Fahrenheit water for 20 seconds, they experienced a 2 to 300 increase in norepinephrine, which lasted for an hour. So you're getting this huge burst of adrenaline. Not as substantial if you're in there for an hour, but, you know, who has the time, right? Unless you're at the lake or something like that. Uh, the point is that we can trigger this burst of adrenaline and uh, activate our system even with just a quick dip in ice water. So, good to know. And I actually have not seen any study about whether or not it matters how cold it is in terms of increasing the spike in adrenaline. My intuition says it does because the more intense cold water you have the more intense the experiences so the more adrenaline floods the system uh but i haven't seen any studies about that it's just my experience and people talk about this thing called adrenal burnout uh so there's actually no such thing as adrenal burnout under normal conditions the adrenals have enough adrenaline to support 200 years of stress for better or worse there is something however called adrenal insufficiency syndrome which is a real physiological problem where some people have impaired adrenals and they can't produce adrenaline and melatonin taking at very high levels for periods of time that are too long can cause suppression of the cortisol and epinephrine released from the adrenals and can create a kind of pseudo adrenal insufficiency syndrome so be aware of melatonin and for a lot of reasons it's not really recommended i've heard it doesn't really induce sleep it just tells your body it's time to sleep and you still might not be able to fall asleep because it's not putting you to sleep if that makes sense so the other benefit of this practice of the cold plunge is not just to experience this power from adrenaline you know or the flood of adrenaline or dopamine but also to train and subdue our response to stress so we want to invoke this stress so that we have a response consciously programmed for instance like you know if a rattlesnake jumps out of the corner where you're sitting right now you're not going to be oh, let me breathe deeply and relax and not react to this and counteract my conditioning and change it neurologically speaking but if you consciously choose to hop into ice water you have that wonderful opportunity to do exactly that you can consciously say okay i once it comes on i get that <gasps> adrenaline rush i'm going to <sighs> breathe into it really gently and activate my parasympathetic nervous system in the wake of this stress so we are overriding our stress responses and then this is very powerful because it plays out in how you affect everything else in your life. Maybe there's some trigger that you have, whether it's something related with a certain person or a certain environment or a certain anything, right? Circumstances. Now you can apply that training of the cold plunge to this other factor in your life and gain control over your response and your stress so it's extraordinarily empowering when you look at it from this perspective and i can't emphasize that enough i could talk a whole podcast about that 
and myself how it transformed my own life and irrational fears and things that were stressing me out and using the cold specifically to say everything's fine breathe deeply breathe slowly be calm and watch as that carried into many factors in my life and very beautiful process i highly recommend taking some effort to at least try it essentially you know your body is saying holy shit i need to get out i'm going to die but instead you are backed by knowledge you choose to override that response and relax despite the system says so suddenly you find yourself quite relaxed and calm in the middle of something that your body was previously telling you was life-threatening that's very powerful then because the pain and pleasure pathways of the body operating like a yo-yo what was originally excruciatingly painful because it is at least for a moment the ice water and i don't want to scare anybody because it's more like the second you go in your adrenaline hits so you don't really feel it but what's when i say it's excruciatingly painful your body is indicating that and we're going to talk a little bit about pain later on it's a very fascinating thing and it's a very illusionary thing in many ways when you see some of these real life examples it's it's quite profound it'll it blew my mind to say the least to realize how much pain is an illusion yet real at the same time and so your body is saying it's painful and so at the same time because your hormonal responses are so quick it floods you with dopamine which is a neurotransmitter not a hormone but it floods you with dopamine and all of a sudden bliss comes through and dopamine is an endo opioid uh, and also meaning endogenous endo and opioid from within and then an endocannabinoid comes in called anandamide so uh, anandamide is one of the body's bliss chemicals Sadhguru, who I just listened to his inner engineering book and I, I enjoyed listening to it he talks about anandamide in the book and he shared anandamide received its name from the neuroscientists based off the phrase sat chit and ananda so that's a very famous phrase obviously sat means being chit means consciousness and ananda means rapture or bliss you know depending on the translations and uh sachin ananda are also the yogic phrase which was responsible for inspiring joseph campbell to say follow your bliss as he says he could understand bliss uh, but not being or consciousness when he read the phrase and if he held on to bliss he said in his life it would certainly lead him to consciousness and being later in his life he said i think it worked <laughs> so the idea here is that there is a, there are chemicals in our being in our body that stimulate and activate the experience of bliss and there are healthy and habitual ways that we can engage with them and responsible ways obviously you know you're spending 15 hours a day in the cold plunge that's not very responsible assuming that it hasn't killed you already <laughs> but you know going in for one minute to five minutes maybe even less than that i personally was doing long times in the cold plunge when i first got it because i felt like i really wanted to go deep with it because it was really working powerfully in a way that other things at that moment were i was struggling with my practices and nowadays i feel a tremendous amount of equanimity and balance and so i go in for honestly no more than three minutes i rarely do three minutes i usually go a minute to two minutes and that feels great i feel that the whole day or i feel that before i go to bed and it's just plenty you don't need much when you're trying to sustain an equanimity if you're trying to gain an equanimity if you're struggling with something like addiction or anxiety or depression or some sort of severe trauma then gradually is the key word here working into higher and longer 
periods of submersion in the ice water might be a wonderful thing for you, but I say gradually and also supervised because it is intense. And longer periods are also, well, they alter your consciousness more intensely. So you need to be conscientious of how deep you want to go with that because it's one thing to go in and just get this you know jolt of adrenaline and the dopamine and things and feel good but another thing to like flood it like hardcore for a long time and i might sound like i'm contradicting myself here based on the study with the women where they're getting this a near dose of adrenaline as the ones as someone that goes in for an hour in warmer water but uh like i said i haven't seen any long-term studies of the difference between sitting in ice water for 15 minutes versus one minute. And I can say from my own personal anecdotal experience that sitting in ice water for 15 minutes and upwards of 20 minutes uh, is much more of a stressor on the consciousness and your experience of life than one minute. One minute feels more like a jolt and more like wakes you up and gets you going and makes you feel happy while 15, 20 minutes makes you kind of feel like uh, you took some sort of mind-altering substance. <laughs> so you need to be conscientious of what point in the day and why you're doing it. There's a lot of things to think about here. I don't recommend you do these things unconsciously uh, with a lot of care and a lot of paying attention to what's really helping you and what's what might just be like an ego trip of like, oh, let me see how long I can do it for. So just some words uh, from my own experiences there. So to talk about endocannabinoids, which anandamide is a uh, byproduct of, so endocannabinoids go up 42% from singing and dancing. That's amazing. So uh, this is why so many traditional indigenous ceremonies with plant medicines have people singing and dancing. It's quite obvious they're activating the medicine from within, and they're not and they're utilizing at the same time an external force of something, say like ayahuasca or peyote, to sing, to activate the medicine, to stimulate it. And there's an inner innate intuitive knowledge of singing and dancing as activating the system and this bliss power. So another thing on the endocannabinoid system isn't that's interesting is uh, exercise is profoundly empowering for it. So they say only sustained cardiovascular exercise activates it. Sprinting and weightlifting do not, for instance. Although sprinting and weightlifting are f phenomenal for your body. I'm going to talk a little bit about them at the end. But this is, a, I think, a key thing to understand. If you want to access anandamide, but maybe you don't want to jump in a cold plunge, sustained aerobic activity. So, you know, 25, 30 minutes, I find that I am in another dimension of bliss and rapture if I've run that long. Uh, and I remember hearing somewhere, I think Dr. Rhonda Patrick, who um, I enjoy her work a lot and all this stuff, biohacking and things like that, neuroscience, I believe 40 minutes, 45 minutes of, of running, not at a crazy pace, normal pace, whatever that means for you, is like the, the right dose of it. Uh, and I need to double check, but I believe in non-demind, you can overdo on some level uh, where it counteracts and you know this might be why a marathon runner doesn't really feel like super euphoric at the end of it and they're more want to pass out depending on the person of course 25 to 30 minutes of running is wow in another dimension that's how I personally feel and that's why I try to you know run three to five times a week depending on what's happening just a couple miles three to five miles so uh, people like to say that you get a runner's high from endorphins, which endogenous morphine, 
And actually, it's not. It's from endocannabinoids because uh, unlike endorphins, endocannabinoids can actually pass through that blood-brain barrier we were talking about in the fasting section. So running is just phenomenal. I highly recommend it. It's a secret, yet it requires discipline, simple hack to just feel good in the moment immediately. Obvious things, we all know it, but I found for myself personally that when I understood that running in particular sustained is activating this endocannabinoid system and getting flooding you with ananda mind uh and then on the premise follow your bliss follow ananda mind you know the universe will open doors before there are only walls i can attest to this it's something so simple yet so powerful and transformative if you are not feeling good you want to feel good just go for a 30 minute run and you will be in bliss and rapture and as uh, we were talking before, though, if you enjoy running and can train yourself to enjoy it, I used to hate it myself, and now I really love it, crave it in a certain way, then you also get the dopamine coming in. And as we were talking before, exercise, you need to enjoy it to really receive the, the fruits of the dopamine system and the, and the rush from that. Perhaps rush is not the right word. Rise might be more appropriate. So coming back to cold water. So we understand the cold is powerful for releasing adrenaline and training the stress response in the mind to bring us into a deep calm that can last beyond a few minutes in the water. But let's look at how it affects the physical body in case there's any concern over that. The human being reacts to the cold, whether it's cold air or cold water, through a process called vasoconstriction, where the body, the body constricts blood flow and a mass movement towards the core and vital organs to preserve heat in the body and keep one alive. However, the thermal conductivity of water is 25 times greater than air, so humans lose body heat up to five times more quickly in water compared to the same temperature in air. This process of vasoconstriction is why your extremities are the first part of your body to experience pain in the cold. The blood vessels are constricting and the blood is flowing away from them. They are furthest away from your core at this moment. So as you can imagine, vasoconstriction hurts signaling a 250% rise in dopamine to counteract that pain, especially when you're in a cold plunge, it hurts. So the cardio system is so powerful that if your leg was to be cut off suddenly, the process of vasoconstriction would be able to essentially stop all the bleeding to preserve your life, at least for a period of time. The cardio system is so extensive that if you were to string it out in one person, it would reach 125,000 kilometers. There are countless muscles that are engaged in the upkeep and maintenance of that system. The process of cold exposure exercises those muscles through the intentional activation of vasoconstriction, which empowers a normally dormant system for most people due to cultural environmental comfort controls and a conditioned fear of cold temperatures. There is no surprise in my mind that heart disease is by far the number one cause of death in the world. People do not know how to engage the cardio muscles, and we have created environments which do not stimulate it. In 2017, cardiovascular diseases killed 18 million people. The next highest category is cancer at 10 million, then respiratory at 4 million. The cardiovascular system is a muscle that needs to be engaged, and modern humans simply do not engage it. Don't ask me why I chose 2017 as the year, it's just what I did. I don't believe it's changed much. So vasoconstriction is the body's natural anti-inflammatory response. Cold exposure numbs our nerve endings for pain reduction. It lowers the temperature of our muscles and constriction sends blood away from damaged muscle tissue and towards vital organs resulting in an enormous reduction in swelling and unhealthy inflammation. 
the damaged muscle is essentially able to relax and return to a state of balance. The flow of blood also leads to higher sex drive, greater fertility, and increased immunity. All very good things. So, you will notice that your entire body will turn red when you do a cold plunge because of the blood flow of vasoconstriction, which also floods the brain with blood, and specifically regions of the brain ordinarily lacking insufficient blood. Why is this important? So there's a talk on YouTube by Dr. Daniel Amen, who, looking at his work, he's kind of like a celebrity doctor, but at the same time, I felt a resonance of truth of what he was talking about, and he seems pretty legit from having done 83,000 brain scans, which is the title of his lecture on YouTube, or TED Talk, rather, Why I learned, what I learned from 83,000 brain scans. And his premise is that the majority of psychiatric and brain disorders, such as addiction, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, seizures, Alzheimer's, and dementia, are caused by mainly a lack of proper blood flow to the brain. That's what he observed in watching all of these scans and seeing that when people were dealing with specific ailments and problems, you can see it in the brain scan. And his premise is really interesting because it's all about like why is psychiatric medicine the one medicine field according to him that doesn't look at the organ which which is at the source of the problem they're treating so when someone has depression they're like oh let's talk about like your past and your feelings but it's like why not look at the brain because this is where these things are originating in according to him and he said when they do that they find that there's very clear indications of why those behavior patterns or emotional disorders or mental disorders are manifesting so I thought that was quite profound, especially in relationship to this idea that of vasoconstriction and extreme blood flow that happens in the cold plunge. Because uh, anyone can tell you when you come out of the cold plunge, you're in a completely, and I don't want to say it's altered state because, and I already did, but it's not really like that. It's like a rejuvenated state. You feel like you can take on the whole world and it's, undoubtedly because of this blood flow to the brain and these parts of the brain because i'm sure all of us in some way or another perhaps because trauma perhaps because behavior maybe that's just the way the mind the brain works in that person have some area that could use a little bit more juice and more nutrients and oxygen from the blood so if you want to start thinking about healing work if you want to start thinking about how to bring homeostasis to someone you need to start thinking about what's going to activate blood flow to the brain and what's better than a cold plunge because god bless me the thing is so powerful and this is also why i would recommend being conscientious and careful and going slow and gradual especially if you're dealing with some kind of disorder because it could be too jarring and having too much dopamine oftentimes leads to things like schizophrenia and other psychic bipolar disorder and things like that uh that being said if one is conscious enough they can utilize cold water in the training of the stress response to create an equanimity uh although you know this is something that i would say someone needs to have some kind of self-knowledge about wouldn't just be intuitive you wouldn't just throw a schizophrenic person schizophrenic person in a cold plunge and just hope it works out uh they need to have an understanding of the disorder and how to guide themselves out of it through the breath work and the stress response training and and so on and so forth nonetheless i want to re-emphasize you want to think about how to bring real healing to someone think about blood flow to the brain it's a very i think linchpin 
of the situation. And when I was when I came across Daniel Amen's work, I was really it was kind of like an aha eureka moment. I was like, oh, this is why <laughs> the sauna, the sweat lodge, the cold plunge, cacao, and these things are so healing because it's just it floods you back, it wakes you back up. Simply put, so. Not only does cold water tremendously flood the brain with rejuvenating blood, but it also releases very powerful things called cold shock proteins, which stimulate autophagy in and of themselves. You don't need to be fasting. So coming back to that process of the body eating and destroying damaged uh, material, neurological material, it's happening from these cold shock proteins because the stress and the body is needing to respond to that stress and needing an additional uh, jolt of energy, you could say. And so it's it whatever is not able to uh, be utilizing clean fuel, whatever is not really in harmony with the system because of that stress response is just getting devoured and turned into energy. Very interesting. Very, I mean, like this kind of, when you, when you do the practice daily and then you start to read this stuff, you're like, whoa, this is what's happening to me. I'm literally like neurologically resetting my entire system from the brain to the the hormones everything and gaining control over it too because that's what's happening in these practices is that you're starting to master your stress response and i mean just think about what this could be applied to i mean to me it's quite endless and infinite and it's extremely inspiring to learn more about it so let's keep going the cold also uh, stimulates the growth of brain-derived neurotropic factor and neurogenesis so you're now regrowing the brain connections new uh, new cells, everything. Basically, it's just like a phoenix coming out of the fire, right? The fire, in this case, it's ice. So, uh, hormetic stress is a trigger for cleaning damaged material in the brain and growing new brain cells and nerves. So, there are two types of thermogenesis, shivering and non-shivering. <laughs> shivering is an obvious manner of heating the body through muscle contraction. Non-shivering thermogenesis is done by unique mechanisms in both skeletal muscle and adipose tissue deposits of fat. There are three types of adipose fatty tissue, white, brown, and beige. Brown and beige are responsible for non-shivering thermogenesis. Early research suggested that brown fat was present only in newborns where it served as a means to protect against heat loss. So this is interesting because I read that uh, indigenous traditions would put naked babies in the snow for 15 minutes at a time in order to train them for having powerful system to deal with the cold. I have came across that from a podcast with Scott Carney, who was one of the people responsible for making Wim Hof famous. Haven't found too much about it since, and I'm not really inclined to try it with my son, McCoy, quite yet. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's something I want to continue to research a little bit more about because I it seems to make sense based off of all of what we're talking about here. Uh, so, however, um, the brown fat in recent research has been identified also in active adults, not just newborns, and typically following cold exposure. No surprise. So, for example, a study in which healthy young men were exposed to cold for two hours a day for 20 days found that brown fat volume increased 45% and cold induced total brown fat oxidative metabolism increased more than twofold. These findings suggest that cold exposure can increase brown fat activity and may increase energy expenditure to improve metabolic health. 
Studies in animals and humans have indicated that brown fat can improve glucose and insulin sensitivity, increase fat oxidation, and protects against diet-induced obesity and be a potential treatment for type 2 diabetes. A respective study of more than 52,000 people who had cancer found that people with detectable brown fat had a lower prevalence of cardiometabolic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, and hypertension than those without detectable body fat brown fat so this is the good fat you want to have brown fat cold water activates it it stimulates it cold exposure uh it's something we had infants and we lost and it helps in a number of different things which i listed there that's the simplification of everything shared and a study comparing regular winter swimmers who practice more than once a week to non-habitual swimmers showed that uh, resting concentrations of some white blood cells such as leukocytes and monocytes, were higher compared to the non-habitual swimmers. So these white blood cells are magic for our immune system, let's put it like that. Additionally, a study found regular winter swimmers may decrease respiratory tract infections by 40%. A normal byproduct of energy metabolism and exercise is the production of antioxidants. Excess concentrations of reactive oxygen species can promote muscle damage, fatigue, immune dysfunction, DNA damage, and cellular sensinence. I don't actually know what that one is. <laughs> Gotta look that up. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, anyways, cold exposure appears to activate endogenous antioxidant enzymes by functioning as a hormetic stressor and increases of up to 68% of glutothionine peroxidase and 36% of superoxidized dismutase was found after three minutes of cryotherapy. And so they're basically just saying that these endogenous from within antioxidants are just getting ramped up from a few minutes of, of cryotherapy. So you don't need to necessarily buy every antioxidant health food product on the, on the market. Cold water, cold air exposure is going to do it for you. So, and not even a lot, three minutes of cryotherapy. So cold exposure has been also been found to positively stimulate the gut microbiome and improve metabolism. I did not know that. And I think that's very interesting that it stimulates gut microbiome. You know, the simple thing with, with uh, cold is that, like we said, it's a huge stress on your system and it's done in a small dose. And if there's one thing the human body and being responds positively to is stress. It activates your creativity, your consciousness, your emotions, your mind, your body. Everything about you is going into wake up, pay attention, get going. Every Down to the mitochondria and the DNA. I mean, it's that powerful. So you want to bring stress into your life. So what have we talked about so far? Fasting, which is a stressor, although more gradual, and uh, talked about cold water now so cold water and fasting right these are stresses that's what's linking everything together here is the conscious and deliberate use of stress to activate our systems back into you know superhuman capacity right of our ancestors so i want to come back to cold shock proteins when animals hibernate they experience synapse loss in their brains meaning there's less communication between neurons in the brain during this time obviously and their functions such as memory are essentially disabled what's the point of it right so cold shock proteins are responsible for synaptic regeneration for animals when they wake up from hibernating interestingly 
as I was saying, right, the cold wakes you up, and these cold shock proteins are an essential aspect of that. Synaptic regeneration through the cold shock protein, RBM3, has been found in mice and humans, although neither are hibernating animals. Just something that's very interesting, right? Why is it there? So the upregulation of RBM3 in mice with who were uh, detected as having Alzheimer's, it was found to promote sustained synaptic protection. It prevented behavioral deficient, uh, deficits and neuronal loss and prolonged survival. And there is a, they're promoting that this is a, a parallel situation with a human being in, in Alzheimer's. So the cold shock protein is just, uh, you know, it's waking up the brain back to its functioning capacity for both hibernating animals and for human beings going in cold plunges and animals that are not hibernating such as mice very interesting uh and it, it switches everything from you know the deep neuronal synapses then behavioral def uh, deficits so it's changing our behavior so a lot of times i think people are struggling so deeply with how do i change how do i shift something and oftentimes will guilt trip themselves or feel bad about themselves or blame themselves or judge themselves or just cultivate low self-esteem even if, even if they're combating that in their mind trying to work through it and perceiving themselves as a failure. And I would say that, well, look at what types of behaviors you're doing that can be immediately uh, challenged in a neuronal level. Stop eating and go in the cold plunge and all of a sudden something is going to flip on and your behavior will follow suit so it's like it's one thing to change your behavior it's one thing to change your emotion it's another to change your mind but go even deeper i mean change your mitochondria <laughs> i mean that's really going to impl implement change trade your synaptic connections that's that's really going to change all the other stuff go to the deepest layer uh where consciousness is meeting physical reality right that I think is where the real transformation is and uh, do it and then tell me if you agree or disagree I, I've found for myself it's just been literally like a magic pill and what's wonderful about it like I said is that it's not these things so far fasting and, and cold exposure are not things that you're like ingesting to escape pain you're going deeper into pain <laughs> to invoke bliss I mean the I'm now at about uh, let's see, I'm thinking about 50 hours into the fast. And like, there's some definite discomfort here. I mean, no doubt, like strange sensations at different moments. And, uh, but that's, but that's crucial, right? We're not, I'm not avoiding anything. I mean, it's the ultimate, I'm not avoiding anything saying I'm going to stop eating and go in a cold, <laughs> cold immersion. I mean, it's crazy, right? But that's what activates the system. And so it's important too when we do these things, uh, gradually because they can be dangerous if we start to combine things and we're not paying attention so i don't recommend that people combine things until they have full grasp on one thing or another i've been doing cold water swimming since i first got exposed to it in 2011 i did 12 minutes in the atlantic ocean in february with the coney island polar bears and i've been doing it almost more or less daily for the past uh let's see 13 months now and uh, fasting I've been doing since 2013, doing the first time I did a multi-day fast, which was pretty much a dry fast on a vision quest. Uh, so 
having experience with these things, not just being like, okay, I just read about the internet, which is fine. You can just read about the internet. But I, I also had someone guide me into the fasting and I had someone in person guide me into the cold water. So it's recommended to have real people that can guide you. If not, consult people. I find Reddit is a wonderful source because you can hear about people's anecdotal experiences and ask questions and get real answers. Uh, and as always, if you don't have someone to guide you, you, you know, you're extra slow. Want to just reiterate that. Okay, so cold exposure immediately after weight training blunts the workout, they say. Uh, but past one hour, there's been some evidence that maybe it benefits the performance if you wait an hour and then you start lifting weights. Uh, cold exposure immediately after endurance training, though, helps the body recover and promotes an increase in performance. Uh, the duration of the exercise matters, though. Sprinting plus immediate cold exposure was not necessarily benefit for the release of the healing hormones in the body. It seemed to interrupt that process. So one should wait over an hour before applying cold in any form uh, to something like sprinting, cold plunge, or an ice pack. Uh, I like to run, you know, three, five miles, then I hop in the cold plunge. I lift weights a couple times a week, and then I will wait until that night to go in the cold plunge because I want to allow the body to res restore and rejuvenate itself without interrupting the process. So I'm going to leave it at that with some of the more neurological information regarding the cold exposure. And I just want to talk a little bit about the mindset and the perspective. Uh, if you look at the Wim Hof method, I believe mindset is one of the three pillars of the method next to breath work and cold exposure and I think in a lot of ways we the mindset is perhaps the most important aspect of the whole thing and that's a big motivation for why I chose to do this podcast was because I wanted to provide a context neurologically speaking that would inspire you to get you in the mindset to apply yourself into these practices and to engage yourself because I think in a lot of ways things like fasting cold exposure heat exposure physical exercise and other things of that nature they all kind of have this reoccurring uh, thread within them all though they're all they're very different and the reoccurring thread is stress and discomfort and we've just been conditioned and trained and manipulated and seduced by culture and advertisements and politicians, our parents, our friends, television, the internet, all the bullshit in the world to get us to believe that feeling comfortable, feeling full all the time, with lots of sugar and lots of salt, <laughs> and always to be at a comfortable temperature where we're constantly entertained and not challenged by anything, one can conjure up the image perhaps of the cartoon Wally, created by Disney or Pixar of all companies, uh, of the extremely obese people just glued to a chair and watching a screen all day long. And for some reason we have decided that this is normal and this is healthy and this is freedom. Uh, and that this is bliss and all these sort of things. I have seen a lot of times people will uh, get really, really pissed off when they think about someone like Jeff Bezos or something like that on the internet. And in a lot of ways, 
you kind of actually have to feel sorry for someone like that. Someone that is so consumed by material things. And I don't know Jeff Bezos personally. I don't know what his inner attitude is. Maybe he's extremely enlightened. <laughs> and is uh, he's actually not like that. But one would, let's just say it's safe to assume for the conversation here that he is materialistically oriented in that kind of way and has this unsatiable desire but one has to feel really sorry for someone like that and i think like in the culture people have just gotten confused that having and taking and consuming is a doorway to happiness and what i want to offer here is not just from like the teachings of ancient traditions which yes they do all say this but also from the teaching of neuroscience, from Western medicine in a lot of ways, the implication is that no, that makes you miserable. It's human connection that makes you happy. It's discomfort that activates a state of bliss and homeostasis and equanimity. It's really a philosophy of less is more and that satisfaction comes through growth and learning and sharing and compassion and giving and challenging oneself and you don't need any money to do that you don't need any money you don't need fame you don't need attention you don't need a lot of the values that the culture puts forth in its mythos and i think in a lot of ways the sickness of modern culture has so much to do with the mythos that it tells people the mythology is something that informs people as to what's happening at different stages of their life from a spiritual perspective, from an evolutionary psycho psychological perspective, like what is happening inside of you in your psyche as you are, you know, because what's happening at you age 12 is very different than age 45. And what you're pursuing, what is important to you, what you're craving for, what's going to create satiation for you. And really it's a crisis of mythology that's led to you know humanitarian crisis ecological crisis health crisis racial crisis socioeconomic crisis every type of freaking crisis you can think of <laughs> you can put it in there one has to just laugh at it on some level and it's because we just don't understand that these principles of what ancient teachers have put forth you find freedom through discomfort Listen to any truly masterful person, regardless of what craft they're involved in, whether it's a soldier, an artist, a yogi, a politician, maybe not a politician, I don't know. If you can find one, let me know. But they all seem to suggest one thing, someone who's truly disciplined in their craft and has some degree of mastery, they all say you need to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's across the board. And that should be a central tenet of the modern era mythos right there that whatever you want to do in life good go do it but remember that you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable you need to train yourself to do that and obviously then principles relating to social service sharing compassion giving forgiveness mindfulness peace equanimity those also should come forth based on our understanding of how things related to the dopamine system work, how things related to the serotonin system work, recommendation of elders. But understanding that we need to train ourselves with discomfort. 
And that true satisfaction, true joy is only going to come on the other side of that discomfort. So why is the world so horribly imbalanced and completely whack, for lack of a better term? It's simply because no one really ever told this to us. And that's because so many people themselves never understood it. People seeking power, seeking instant gratification, essentially took control. And to their own dismay, that's my point here with Jeff, someone like Jeff Bezos, it's like, it's not like these people have discovered freedom. In fact, they're more enslaved than the rest of us in a lot of ways, at least the rest of us who are not pursuing that. And there is a really beautiful short documentary on YouTube you can look up about a tribe, I think, in the Brazilian Amazon. And they do this ritual ceremony. It's filmed by National Geographic where they take 12-year-old boys and they weave uh, little baskets onto their hands, like mittens on their hands. And then they inoculate these, not inoculate, they uh, knock out these ants called bullet ants and they're called bullet ants because when obviously when they bite you it's like the most horrible thing in the world it's like getting shot by a bullet they often describe it as like you're on fire when these things uh, bite you and one can only imagine uh what bullet ants in the brazilian amazon can feel like it's probably quite horrible and what they do is they put the ants to sleep with smoke and then they put about 50 of them in each little boy's glove and then they uh they do like a tribal dance for hours on end where the kid has to hold his hands up and keep dancing through the pain right remember dancing and singing ananda mind so i think it's interesting right there just to interrupt it right they're teaching him you can activate ananda mind you are able to go beyond the pain through the dopaminergic system to access a state of catharsis and bliss and focus and concentration. I imagine there's tons of adrenaline going through the system as well, which heightens focus and concentration. And you can control the experience of the pain. You can override your stress response. And so they make the kids dance in a ceremony and they're singing and However, if they cry, they have to start all over again. And I think at the end of the clip, it says that sometimes it takes the kids 20 times until they can stop crying. <laughs> I'm laughing just because that's totally crazy. I can't imagine having to go through that. But you know that those kids who go through that, at least intuit, we can intuit that those kids aren't going to become abusive towards others. They're going to respect nature. They're going to respect one another. They're not going to become greedy, narcissistic, egotistical. They're not going to destroy the planet. They're going to meditate on harmony of nature. They're going to have a lot of humility due to the experience of something like that. And this is probably just one of many series of initiations that they go through. And this is something for us to reflect on how we lack initiation in our culture in many ways. The initiation is something along the lines of go to college and then get a job and then have a family but no one teaches you how to actually deal with the suffering of your own system 
which in many ways is just an immaturity and and from an immaturity not like in a derogatory negative connotation but an immaturity in the sense of the system hasn't been fully developed neurologically like these kids you know that if these kids from this tribe are in certain contexts where their disc or their comforts are taken away they're not going to freak out and cry and fuss and make a big deal but if you take a kid from anywhere in the united states who's 13 years old they might have a temper tantrum over something as simple as the tv uh, is not working so just things to meditate about how we are simultaneously raising ourselves utilizing knowledge not just of ancient people but also modern neuroscience and how they're reinforcing each other how are we raising ourselves to confront pain and discomfort in our life to create a more harmonious consciousness within us to share with others and to help others and also how are we raising our own youth i have a son who was born let's see almost two months ago and i'm definitely meditating about what would be a healthy initiation for him as he gets older given saying this i don't think i'm gonna uh, import some bullet ants i don't think i'm qualified to lead that ceremony (laughs) he'd probably get kind of pissed off at me too i think that things like that require a tribal communal context for it to work otherwise it might just seem like you're a crazy father so I think that having communally sponsored, you could say, <laughs> not corporately speaking, initiation is important because it's something along the lines of the society is supporting this. The society recognizes that this is necessary for a youth to understand pain and to understand that they can go beyond pain because that's that's the key thing here. I don't want people to get confused. We're not emphasizing child abuse. We're not the teaching is that pain is an illusion and a distraction and there's something much deeper in your system that can override it and ancient people would say it's the spirit neuroscientists would say it's dopaminergic system and ananda mind allowing you to transcend pain it doesn't matter the language the point is that transcendence of pain and discomfort is possible and we can find all kinds of healthy ways to stimulate that transcendence and yes there is pain initially and yes some things are more intense for others so we need to be conscientious of what we expose people to but that we need to be open that pain is actually great medicine it's wonderful because it teaches us how much stronger we are than what we thought So if there's one thing that you can take away from this, it's that cold exposure is a wonderful tool for teaching you that you are much stronger than what you formerly believed, and it will empower your psyche, your emotions, your physical system, your mental health, and hopefully that in turn leads to a more refined, compassionate, open spiritual consciousness as well. So thank you to the pioneers of the cold plunge, the yogis in the Himalayas, Wim Hof, and everyone else from all the traditions that inspire cold water for teaching us to become very comfortable with being discomfort 
and that that discipline leads to freedom. How shall we?